Hi, this is Sandy Kay. I'm the host of A Breath of Fresh Air. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with the host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 198 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I am honored to have as my guest today, Noel Paul Stuckey, perhaps better known as Paul of the legendary trio Peter, Paul and Mary. They blazed the path in the 60s and beyond blending folk music with social activism, with memorable songs and wonderful harmonies. From Blowing in the Wind and Puff the Magic Dragon to Leaving on a Jet Plane, they set a level of accomplishment that has rarely been equal. They had six top 10 hits and eight gold albums. Quite remarkable for a folk group. How about that? But Noel has gone far beyond his Peter, Paul, and Mary days. His wedding song has become a standard. He's recorded over 50 albums. I'm not quite at that level yet, but I'm trying. And at age 84, he's still out there recording and performing and rocking. And as you know, in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Noel and I are going to do what I call a song fest, where we're going to play a handful of his songs, little bits of them, and we're going to talk about the backstories and get the real deal. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And as you also know, in each episode, I have one of my songs that's the featured song underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make my song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this case, it was a little tough because I don't write folk songs, but I chose the song Cousins from the album Trippin' that my band Project Grand Slam recorded. This is the one that went to number one on Billboard. And I chose this song because it's got a simple, playful, memorable melody, just like so many folk songs have. So Noel Paul Stuckey, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hey, thank you, Robert. Good to be here. And... Uh... And still in the tail end of a pandemic. That's right. But you're still rocking. That's what counts. <laughs> so I want to ask you, I want to start off. You guys got together in the early 60s. It was a completely different era than what came after that. This was pre-Beatles, pre-British invasion. And you guys dominated that era. Tell me what your thoughts are at this point in time on that early era for the band. To a large extent, I think every musical movement has its beginnings as if you were starting life all over. And in Greenwich Village in the late 50s and early 60s, it was beat poets with a take on the world that lived around us that translated uh, so well to the folk idiom. I mean, Woody Guthrie and uh, Josh White and Pete Seeger were and the weavers were establishing a kind of direct communication between people 
that was uh, devoid of flowery uh, statements. Uh, I, it wasn't exactly turning your back on love, but it was sort of, I don't know, embracing the candid quality of now. So it sounds very Zen, but at the time, we had the feeling that we were riding a wave of contemporary music and thought that was going to take us well into the rest of our lives. And personally speaking, it has. But I don't think that we, I don't think we knew for a fact that it was going to cross over into pop music until a disc jockey out on the West Coast uh, played Lemon Tree from the Peter, Paul, and Mary album. which was followed with probably the more uh, aggressive of the social statements from that album, If I Had a Hammer. If I had a hammer, I'd a hammer in the morning, I'd a hammer in the evening, over this land, I'd a hammer at danger, I'd a hammer at a warning, I'd a hammer at love between my brothers and my sisters, Those two releases back to back established us in the pop era. Uh, so we were competing with the syrupy songs that we turned our backs on. And people seemed to like that kind of honesty. You know, they, they wanted it. I got to stop at that point because that album, that debut album of yours, which was from 1962, the Peter, Paul and Mary debut album, when I looked it up for this interview, I couldn't believe the number of hits that you had on that album. You just mentioned two of them, Lemon Tree and If I Had a Hammer. You had 500 Miles. 500 miles, 500 miles, 500 miles, 500 miles. You had, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where... I mean, what an amazing album. And it stayed at the top of the charts forever. It was like seven weeks at number one. Oh, yeah. It was, well, of course. You got to allow the fact, Robert, that the charts reported more slowly then. I don't care how slowly they reported. That's pretty good. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that sort of explains why we had three albums in the top six in the same year after releasing them a year apart. It was it was a phenomenal success. And I don't know, one that it seemed we really shared with an audience, you know, I, it wasn't by virtue of us doing anything except echoing to a large extent the concerns and cares of an audience that came to see us. You know, the interesting thing about the songs that you're referring to that were on that album and otherwise, they were socially oriented songs. They were message songs, I like to call them. And I love message songs. I write message songs myself, but that whole genre 
has almost disappeared these days. Nobody wants to take a stand in music, it seems. Would you agree or not? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree totally because what you're talking about is the popularity of social message songs, and that has always been, to a degree, uh, not viewed. Um, it's it's difficult to equate that with popularity of music in general. I mean, when you go out to dance, you go out to dance. You don't want to hear a message music necessarily. Uh, when you're driving in the car, uh, you want to hear something that's mellow. You don't want to hear a message music. So to a large extent, that group of singers, songwriters, and concerns are still alive, but they just don't share the dominant position that they did when they were first when that whole era, or when that um, idiom was discovered by the public. Right. And, and that was the big turnaround in pop music. And you got to admit, speaking of the Beatles and speaking of James Taylor and the folks that came after, the acceptance of music that was other than June, Spoon, you know, Moon, Schmoon, that, that happened. I mean, the Beatles music, you wouldn't call that syrupy pop music. I mean, no. that was some of that was really challenging and really edgy and very now. And you picked songs by some of the greatest songwriters of all time. Did you know all of these folks personally? Did you know Dylan? Did you know Pete Seeger? Or did you just love their music? <laughs> I see. No, no, sure. Of course we knew them. Uh, you know, the degree to which we knew them, you know, I was a master of ceremonies at the Gaslight Cafe uh, when Bobby came in the first time, sang songs that sounded like Woody Guthrie's, went away for a couple of months to a chess club in New Jersey. And when he came back, he was a changed man, I'll tell you. How so? It was at that moment uh, when he returned to the Gaslight two months after I had first met him that I became aware of what a talent the guy was. Um, Anyway, yeah, sure. Dylan, uh, you know, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, Ian and Sylvia, we shared many managers and uh, we shared managers, we shared concert stages, you know. Albert Grossman, right? Yes, Albert handled uh, the band, handled Bobby Dylan, Janis Joplin. So there was a great exchange of information. I don't think we would have heard uh, Blowing in the Wind or Don't Think Twice. Had it not for Albert bringing an acetate to uh, the club we were playing in in Chicago. I was going to ask you about that. That's how you got hold of those songs. In other words, it was your manager that that kind of brought them to you. Yeah, well, he was recording a demo for Bobby and those two tunes really jumped out. Um, also, then we begin to share the music world was not so big at that point, at least in terms of folk music. There was Bobby Cormier and there was Milt Oaken in terms of music producers and people who were knowledgeable with the field. I mean, I'm sure there were others. I mean, Harold Leventhal, who managed uh, Pete Seeger. But the fact that the music publishers were interconnected, we found out about John Denver leaving on a jet plane through Milt Oaken, who uh, put together Denver Boise and Johnson and the Chad and managed the Chad Mitchell trio. And so there was an interconnectedness between all of these folk groups and a knowledge of each other's material. In Greenwich Village in 1962 or 1961, 
you couldn't wait to get off stage, not to go upstairs to play poker necessarily, but to go next door and hear the people who were singing. It got so bad, the interchange of material, that there was a story going around that Odetta turned her back to play her guitar part on a particular old folky dude because she didn't want people to figure out what she was doing. Well, it must have been a spectacular scene in the village back then. You had so much talent, so many people. And like you said, it was there were so many places that you could play. Now, you guys played at the Bitter End, which is still around. Do you remember that gig or when you started playing there? Oh, sure. Sure. And the comics who would come in. Yeah. yeah. Cosby played the Bitter End and also uh, Woody Allen played the Bitter End. You know, the, the musician I didn't mention earlier at the Gaslight, who's really still important in folk music, is Tom Paxton. Tom Paxton never made the star status himself, but his music surely did. I mean, he's been covered by a gazillion people from country and Western to, uh, you know, to that rock and roll, uh, was it tune that did a uh, bottle of wine, fruit of the vine? Right. And we also happened to be roommates, so I thought I'd put a plug in for him. He's still he's still out there singing. That was a spectacular error, really a spectacular error. All right, I want to ask you about, you guys were involved in the 1963 March on Washington. That's the one where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I mean, one of the most iconic events that ever took place in this country. Tell me your recollections about that. Well, they began much earlier at what most people don't know, unless they were there, was a rehearsal. And that's why the iconic picture of Peter, Mary, and I singing in front of the Washington Monument and 250,000 people is kind of misleading because it appears as though we were singing there at the March on Washington, but that, that was actually a gathering place for all of us. And the important thing to remember about that, Robert, was if we hadn't met there to begin with and then marched to the Lincoln Memorial, there wouldn't have been quite the same sense of purpose because we knew, we, I mean, we all came in from various places. We knew why we were there, but to have experienced Martin's speech, to have experienced some of the music, to have heard Joni and, and, uh, and Bobby sing, uh, to hear the other speakers, to hear Odetta, and then to move with solemnity to the memorial gave a kind of gravitas to it that, uh, well, we're standing on the steps. We haven't gone on yet, but we're looking at the sea of people. And Mary turns to Peter in a quite often quoted statement, says, we are watching history. And she was right. She knew. Tell me about your relationship with, uh, with Mary and Peter. How did that all go? Mary lived across the street while I was working at the Gaslight. And since I was kind of the oddball, uh, you know, I did sound effects, comedy, sang some of my own songs. I was a mater D from time to time. Uh, we got to know each other. She would come in and check it out. She even took me on my first official tour of the Italian holiday uh, 
you know, Columbus Day in Greenwich Village, which Columbus was Day, celebrated yeah. a bit more effusively than it uh, is elsewhere. And um, so when Peter Yarrow, on the, on the basis of his discovery of a photograph of Mary in a guitar shop, uh, and, and Albert Grossman, who was Peter's manager at the time, saying, yeah, she'd be good to get in a group if you could get her to work. We thought that meant, you know, uh, initially that she would be reluctant to do any kind of work. But actually, she had a child at the time and a broken marriage. Hmm. So she lived across the street with her daughter. And I arranged a song for her. I think it showed up on uh, the, the live concert album. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of the tune now. But anyway. She, she and I knew each other, so it was only natural she would call me and say, hey, I've got this guy over here with a guitar, can we come over and sing? The funny thing about folk music, and I suppose this would be true of rock and roll too, except that most of the tunes I think you learn in rock and roll are not by word of mouth, it's by radio, by, by having heard them on the radio. These tunes, which were transmitted by the oral trans tradition, when we got together and tried to find a tune that we could sing together, just to see how our voices sounded, we could not agree on a tune that had the same lyrics or the same chords. So we ended up singing, Mary had a little lamb, little, but you know, in three-part harmony. That could be awesome. And no matter who had the lead, the other two would just gravitate to, I don't know, it was perfect. Mary had a low enough voice that she could almost sing an alto part. Peter had a tenor, but he could get down to a baritone. And I had a baritone that could get down to close to a bass as well as a tenor. So that's why sometimes we'd interchange uh, the lead in a song three times, you know. I'm curious, did you know that first time you got together that this was special? Well, I'm an only child, so I can't give you the response that you're probably looking for. But of course it was special to me. I never had brothers or sisters, so this really sounded cool. And, and the only singing I did together was with a rock and roll group I had in high school called the Birds of Paradise. And I was the lead singer and they just pretty much did ooh and doo-wop and abba, you know, in the background. So, uh -huh. so yeah, it was, uh, it was special. And Peter said as he left, uh, I'm going to tell Albert that I think we got something going here. I really was reluctant. I was just beginning to take off as this kind of multi-purpose entertainer. So I was reluctant to get it, but Albert said, look, give me six songs, you know, work out six songs, I'll support Mary. And, <laughs> and when we performed them for Albert and his cohort, John Court, who turned out to be kind of the Yogi Berra or the Casey Stengel of the management group, <laughs> John Court said, well, nothing happens, you're gonna happen. <laughs> so the response, their response was uniform. John Cord also went on to say such memorable things as after hearing Lemon Tree on the radio for, and realizing that it was going top 30 in the pop charts, he said, well, kids, it's downhill rest, all the rest of the way uphill. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. My new single, all of the Time is a playful, whimsical love song. It's light and airy and exudes the happiness and joy of being in love. 
The reviewers love it too. Melody Maker has given it five stars and calls it pure bliss, an intimate sound with abundant melodic riches. Pop Icon also gave it five stars and called it ecstasy. You can stream all of the time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode, and you can download it from the pgsstore.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice review too, if you're so inclined. You can do all of that and check out all of our episodes by visiting our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. You know, for this interview, I went back to see some of the early videos that you guys did. And I'm going to start off the second section of our discussion, the uh, song fest, with a version of Blowing in the Wind that you guys did live for the BBC. I don't have a date exactly. It's on YouTube. It's probably in that 62, 63 kind of era. And not only was the song done so spectacularly between the three of you, but, you know, visually you presented such a wonderful image. And that's part of it. You know, every performer, every act has their visual as well as their musical and the visual of that beautiful blonde standing in between the two of you and you guys having your guitars and kind of leaning in to do your harmonies, et cetera. It was a spectacular video and a spectacular performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen some of the BBC. That was, that was beautifully, uh, beautifully shot and, and really well recorded. You can't always trust how they're going to record something live, but that came out really nicely. Yeah. All right. So let's go to the second one. I've asked uh, Noel to pick out a handful of songs that we're going to play during this song fest portion. And you surprised me a bit because the first one you picked out was I Dig Rock and Roll Music, which was definitely in your kind of pop rock era of, of the band. I dig rock and roll music and love to get the chance to play and sing it. So give me your, your thoughts and impressions of this one. 
Well, it's just, I think most people had uh, pigeonholed, those who hadn't come to our concerts and saw the breadth of what it was we spoke to. I think we're pigeonholing us in terms of singing only cause-related music. But we were in that era where we were beginning to discover that the cause was much broader than the initial aspects. Uh, matter of fact, it was the same era that now realized that the March for Civil Rights in 1963 really was only the beginning of a March for Human Rights, which, you know, spread to <laughs> feminism, spread to environmentalism, it spread, I mean... Yeah, everything. Yeah, and so to that extent, the topic of many songs could be broadened. However, this one, <laughs> which was created by a friend, Jim Mason and, and I, and Dave Dixon was really a chance to imitate our friend because we knew Cass Elliot and the Mamas and the Papas. We had met the Beatles somewhat formally doing uh, their filming of uh, Hard Day's Night and Donovan I knew, he was a sweetheart. So, I mean, we had a lot of fun, you know, imitating those voices while we were doing it. And we tried some of the recording tricks. Peter played his guitar and then they, turn the tape around, which you could do because that's analog, right? And you know, played it backwards, which was one of the devices that the Beatles were using in their music. Right. Yeah, we had a gas with that one. That was a lot of fun. And that, in a sense, you know, to, to a large extent, I think, told our, reassured our audience that while our hearts were concerned with those things, uh, those inequities in life that we would mutually address, there was still time and room to be affectionately involved in the world around us. You lighten the mood with that song, and I thought it was really well done, okay? Because you didn't want to be too heavy all the time, and that was a great song. Yeah. Okay, it was fun. It was fun. Okay, and you know what? I would be remiss if I didn't play a little bit of your one number one song, which was the song by um, John Denver, Leaving on a Jet Plane. So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane I don't So tell us how that one came about. Well, as I said earlier, Milt Oaken was uh, instrumental in John's publishing career. He went on to handle John's, uh, all of John's music. And that song was such a natural for Mary to, to take the lead on. Uh, as a matter of fact, now, you know, Mary having passed away in 2009, when Peter and I perform as a duet, which is rare, but occasional, uh, the audience becomes merry and, and we sing the harmony parts. Yeah, that was a, leaving on a jet plane is no brainer. Mary went on to sing some other John songs, you know, for Bobby, which she changed to for baby, uh, made into a children's song. Yeah, I, I would say next to Dylan and uh, possibly Paxton, Denver was 
the most, oh, and, and Lightfoot. Yeah, Denver was the most recorded artist we, we did. So I'm just curious, a song like that, Oaken comes to you with that song. You all have to agree upon it. Does does Mary jump out and say, this is it, this is the one I want to do, and you guys get dragged along? How did it work? It is true that each of us was had a beacon out for the songs that were in our particular bailiwick. Right. And uh, But I don't think that any one of us except Milton Oaken brought this one to the group. And yes, it is true. We had absolutely was like the veto system in the UN. I mean, any one of us said, nah, I don't want to do that. We wouldn't do it. There were extenuating circumstances, though, that really spoke well to the relationship that we had. I'll tell you, Robert, if one person, had, I mean, since only one person had a veto, if the other two felt really strongly about it, they'd say, okay, what don't you like about it? And if the person said, well, the third verse, I mean, it just doesn't make the point. Then you go, okay, well, what would make the point? And then they'd suggest a line and we rewrite it. And then we do the song. We did yeah, that for Phil cool. Oaks there, but for fortune, he didn't have a bridge. We, we weren't going to do the tune because it was too general. It was too, you know, broadly categorical, it had nothing about the hunger issue which was all over the all over the news and in our hearts and in our concerns. So we wrote uh, we wrote a bridge for there but for fortune, which you'll only hear on the Peter Paul and Mary version. Isn't that funny? All right. Was there ever a song that you guys just passed on that became a hit somewhere else? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think now. From a Distance. Peter brought From a Distance to us. And I don't know what your spiritual persuasion is, but I don't feel that disconnected to a supreme being. I feel like we are extended conceivably extensions of that same spirit. So I was really put off by from a distance, you know, that somewhere up above God was watching all this happen. And I said, nah, and I can't do that. And I had just gone through the same kind of spiritual reckoning that had brought me to write the wedding song. So I wasn't about to, you know, turn my back on that powerful a focus uh, that that powerful belief so yes that but i think that was about the only one that's pretty good that's pretty good all right you did a nice segue for me because the next song on the list is the wedding song parentheses there is love rest assured is true the door's acting on his part And I want you to know that I think the guitar playing that you came up with on that 
is equal to the song itself. So tell us a little bit about that one. Hey, thank you for that compliment, because I'm going to turn that compliment to Shelly Yakis, who was an engineer at the studio, who said, <laughs> go out and double track that 12 string. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, go out and double track and play exactly what you played before. I just listened to it. It's funny you should say, I just listened to it this morning. Wow. There are so many overtones in there. Yes. You swear there's a piano. There's maybe a lower string section. There's a, definitely a, a bass viol. There's, I mean, it's astounding. And then, of course, the amount of echo that he put on my voice. It was like, uh, you know, I was standing in the cavern of the ages, you know, as I sang that song. Well, it had a very full sound, both the guitar and your voice. That's a beautiful melody. We're not even discussing the melody at this point. We're talking about the production value, and it just, it really works, okay? Yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, people, I mean, as a singer-songwriter, you know when the muse is upon you, you know? So you get, I mean, for instance, tell a quick story. I'm on stage singing a song, a lyric that was written oh, maybe two weeks ago, and I get to a spot in the song and I substitute the wrong word. And now suddenly I've got to find a rhyme for it if I'm going to continue singing the song. And I do. On the spot. On the spot. That's a muse. Now that's a senior moment. I'm sorry. I have <laughs> <laughs> The wedding song was a total prayed for two. That was all right. Peter has, you know, Peter has convinced me that I should bless his wedding with a song. I know I'm not qualified, but I know where I can go. So how would you, capital Y, manifest yourself at Peter's wedding? Ta-da! And I'm writing as fast as I can. I am now to be among you, calling every heart's rest assured this troubadour is acting with my part, the union of Wow. And I'm done. And this is two and a half months before the song. You wrote the lyrics first or not? I did not write them. You, <laughs> the divine power wrote them because they were prayed for. Yeah, the lyrics were written first. Interesting. And then it was just a question of ascribing the melody to them. Well, you had divine assistance, huh? I did. But that I differ that from the muse. Right. There's the divine and then there's the muse. I like that. All right, let's go on to the next one. You gave me a live version of In These Times. Tell me about that one. I can't remember what the holiday was. We were living in Maine, and there was a symposium on the environment. And uh, and I went. We went to it. My wife and I drove down to it. It was in uh, Deer Isle, I think. And I felt bad, you know, because I'm a, I'm a 
I'm, I'm a socially conscious, active musician, and I haven't written a song for the circumstance. You know, who, what a turkey. So I get there, and wouldn't you know it, it was the wrong day. The conference was going to be held the next day. Well, I took that as a sign, and I came back and I went to work, and I wrote in these times, which stretched a little bit you know, from the ecological point of view, but there's no doubt that there's a warning in the wind, a wailing, a wailing in the trees, you know, and a rising of the seas. I mean, that it was ecologically driven. But then, you know, it got to the fact that, uh, you know, we are living in troubled political times as well. And the bottom line is uh, that we're all in this together. And so we have to find a way to make it all work together. I took that song as almost like a 50 or 60 year update to all those early songs uh, that you guys did. Yeah. Because in a sense, the same issues are plaguing us that you were talking and singing about back then. Yeah. Isn't that something, Robert? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the last one that you gave me, which I found really interesting, was your version of America the Beautiful, another live version. So tell me about that. Why'd you choose that one? Well, I've offered it a couple of times to larger ceremonies. And I I mean, I don't expect it'll ever make the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, the fact that nobody ever does more than the first verse said to me, well, of course, you know, how many alabaster cities and how many plodding pilgrims feet do you entertain in your vocabulary on a day-to-day -day basis? Right. <laughs> the answer was zero. So I thought, okay, well, now's the chance to bring America up to date and to reacquaint it with its goals, uh, with its promise, and to a large extent, I feel that's what I did with the second verse, you know, nation of the immigrant, the slave and native son, you know, this loyal family's labor that we may live as one. America, America, renew thy founder's call. Let justice prevail for one and all. You know, I took this choice of song. Again, I'm trying to be an armchair psychologist here. But I took this song as kind of your uplifting view after In These Times, which I saw as, you know, you reflecting upon all the problems and the situations that we're dealing with. But now you've got America, the beautiful. Okay. We've got something here that's special. Yeah. Yeah. I was criticized in the third verse that deals with the ecology, you know, uh, where human life and nature strive to live in harmony, you know, because they said, well, nature doesn't strive, it just is. <laughs> well, 
I don't know. You know, every flower is reaching for the sun. You know, there is a there is a part of nature that yearns in much the same way that the human spirit does. So I I feel I don't know somewhat uh, qualified then to join those two aspects of life. I think you're fully qualified to do that. We have been speaking here with Noel Paul Stuckey, Paul of Peter, Paul and Mary. What an amazing career that you've had since the 1960s with that fantastic group. And then all of the time that you've done and all the songs that you've done after that. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure to get to know you and hear your philosophy and listen to and talk about all these great songs. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a ball, Robert. We should do it. Maybe I'll come back as a, another soul and, and we can have a conversation again. Come back as Mary. We'll do it then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to listen now to the song that started off the episode underneath the introduction. It's my song called Cousins. I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Take care now. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.